And I'm going to ask you this morning to turn to Mark 10, 1 through 12, but also to turn to Matthew 19. I'm going to be walking through effectively both passages, uh, leaning on the parallel passage of the teaching uh, in Matthew 19. So you want to look uh, back, and, back and forth at those two passages, Matthew 19, also Mark 10. Uh, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, James 1.17, says, Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Every good thing we experience in this life comes from God. We also learn from Scripture, every good gift that God gives, sin seeks to attack and destroy. Or we could put it this way, every beautiful garden of Eden that God sets up in the world, sin seeks to crowd in and savage and turn into smoldering wreckage. So, and that's true of the original Garden of Eden. Picture that pristine world, radiant with glory. The stunningly beautiful Garden of Eden, well watered with all manner of succulent fruit trees. Picture also the happy and innocent couple, Adam and Eve, married, ready to begin their fruitful life together working together side by side to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with children in their image, to fill the world thereby with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But also picture a forbidden tree, a wife, we are told, completely deceived, a husband, willingly rebellious and through their sin through Adam's sin they and all their unborn children instantly died spiritually because of that act of rebellion because of one man's sin and marriage itself left damaged and even cursed what should have been a perfect oneness now left a tragic battleground In which we are told the woman would strive for dominion in the marriage and seek to rule over her husband and he would use sinful power to rule over her, to dominate her. Since that time, if you know what to look for, there have been many lesser gardens of Eden. There's pockets of God's grace, but then sin comes in and starts to attack it and to savage it. So you think about the world after the flood of Noah, how it had been cleansed and ready for life again, and how in a very short time sin came in. Or think about the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and Israel coming in under the promises of God, but sin soon after attacking. Think about the righteous kingdom of David. And then the terrible sin with Bathsheba and the damage that was done there. Think about the, the kingdom, the wealthy kingdom of wise Solomon and then the damage done because of his uh, many wives, his intermarriage with unbelieving women. Um, but think even about the, the beautiful growing church of Jesus Christ in its pristine days after the days of Pentecost and isn't very long before sin comes in to attack that Garden of Eden as well. All of those gardens of Eden attacked in some way and ravaged by sin. And within one household also, 
after another. Every Christian marriage starts out as, as its own Garden of Eden, um, but in some measure ends up from time to time a battleground in which the couple has to fight their own flesh, their own sin nature, and also that of their spouses to carve out a harvest of righteousness for the glory of God, children raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord Jesus, ministries carried out to completion, to fruitful completion. The couple can fight the good fight, finish the race, keep the faith, but it's still a battle. And so that pristine garden of Eden on their wedding day becomes in some measure a battleground ever since. And that's what we're facing in this text today. We are considering a tragedy, a genuinely tragic topic, the issue of divorce. It is one of the most painful pandemics in the history of the human race. It ravages families, it attacks souls, it destroys happiness. The statistics are terrible and getting worse on this. In the United States alone, in 1970, there were 4.3 million divorced people. By 1994, a generation later, the number had quadrupled to 17.4 million. In the year 2020, the number had grown by 70% again to almost 29, people, 29 million people. Because of this, more and more young people are just choosing not to get married. As the apostles, as Peter said in Matthew, it's better not to get married. Many people are just coming to that conclusion. In 1990, the marriage rate in the U.S. was 9.8 per 1,000 people, but by 2021, it had dropped to 6 per 1,000, almost 40% drop in the number of people getting married. Divorce has, therefore, devastating effects, devastating effects on the couple. Research has shown that divorced men and women suffer much higher rates of mortality, depression, physical illness in general, and substance abuse than do married people, uh, those that stay married. For example, people divorced once have twice the rate of alcoholism and three times the rate of suicide to those that stay married. Uh, divorce is damaging on their children. Children of divorced parents are twice as likely to drop out of school as children from one-time married couples. They are three times more likely to have emotional or behavioral problems. Divorce is devastating on the community that surrounds them. We live together in a network of relationships. We live together in a community. Uh, here in this local church, First Baptist Church, Durham, to some degree the marriages of the covenant members of this church are a community concern. If one of us married couples gets divorced, it's going to have a powerful, unmistakable, though unmeasurable, ripple effect on all the other marriages in the church. We're not free to do whatever we want with our marriages. We are in a network of relationships. We have in Scripture God's timeless pronouncement on this topic. In Malachi 2.16, he said, For all time, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Malachi 2.16. Therefore, turning it around positively, and by the way, that's my whole approach here. It is a negative topic, but I want to turn it around positively to talk about marriage because that's exactly what Jesus does. But if God says, I hate divorce, we must think then he would definitely say, I love marriage. And I think if we look at 
what Jesus taught in Matthew, Matthew 19 and in Mark 10, uh, we would, and from Jesus' doctrine, we would say, it is God himself who made marriage originally. And it is God himself who makes marriages specifically. So let me say that again. Based on the teaching of Jesus in this passage, it is God himself who made marriage originally, and it is God himself who makes marriages specifically. Now this is for us in our time in history and in in our country a needed topic. There is more and more confusion in our modern world about marriage. On June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court of the United States in the Obergefell uh, decision ruled the fundamental right to marry is guaranteed to same-sex couples. December 13, 2022, there was the Respect for Marriage Act, one of the worst named pieces of legislation in history. And there is a genuine fear on the part of Christians of the future of religious freedom on this if we have to respect what has been redefined as marriage, what we would never agree is marriage. Because of this, redefining marriage legally, throwing out millennia of legal precedents, since then there's been more and more confusion, not just on marriage, but on gender itself and sexuality. The floodgates of error have been thrown open. Therefore, we need Jesus' calm, stable, Bible-centric teaching on marriage and on divorce. It's desperately needed. And along with that, as a pastor, I really do believe I can say convictionally, the health of any church is tied to the health of its marriages. The healthier our marriages, the healthier this church will be. And so whether you're single or married or not, all of you who care about this church should care about the health of the marriages in this church. Not only that, as we got to celebrate the children uh, this morning, we have a passage coming up later in Mark 10, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Uh, the future of the church depends on the health of, health of Christian families. And the overwhelming majority of elect people chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world come to faith in Christ through the ministrations of at least one Christian parent. And so it is a, just a factory. The Christian family is a factory for the future generation of, Christian, of Christians. And so therefore the marriage is important. Now Satan knows all of this and therefore he's going to be constantly attacking our marriages. And so Christ's teaching here in Mark 10, also Matthew 19, will be an essential line of defense. So let's walk into the text now and we see immediately the Pharisees' darkly clever attack on Jesus. Mark 10, 1 and 2. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So we need to understand the context. Jesus has now completed the Galilean phase of his ministry and is moving south. He's down into Judea, and then in Mark 10, uh, we have Jesus ministering across the Jordan River in a region called Perea. Now, that is a region that was ruled by King Herod Antipas, the very one who had had John the Baptist beheaded because John had preached that it was unlawful for him to have divorced his own wife and then married his brother Philip's wife, Herodias. Herodias took severe exception to it, so did Herod, and eventually Herod beheaded John because of this teaching. Jesus' enemies 
the Pharisees are cleverly and darkly trying to draw him into the same trap. He's in the same place, not far from where John the Baptist had been beheaded. And so they, this is an attack on Jesus trying to get Herod to be his enemy in the same way. But beyond this, we, we are dealing with the prevailing attitude about divorce among the Jews at the time. Uh, Jesus' teaching on divorce here would have been very unpopular with Jewish people at the time. Priests and scribes, as well as the Pharisees, all followed, many of them followed the teachings of a man named Rabbi Hillel, who had died around the time that Jesus was born. And Rabbi Hillel taught that it was lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. If she burned his meal, or disrespected his mother, or twirled around so that other men could see her ankles, or indeed if he just grew weary of her, for any reason he could divorce his wife. Therefore we can see the surprise of the apostles at Jesus' seemingly restrictive teaching on divorce. This was the norm. So, so we see this phraseology if you look at Matthew 19.3. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause or any and every reason? Or whatever reason he wants to. So the Pharisees are trying to make Jesus unpopular with the Jewish people as well. So it's a very darkly clever trap that they're springing on Jesus. But Jesus is fearless in proclaiming the truth. Always. He does not care what Rabbi Hillel taught. Nor would he care what any society or any culture teaches about marriage and divorce. He would not bow to the Supreme Court ruling or any kind of legislation in our country on this. He would turn forever to the perfect, the unchanging Word of God. And that's exactly what he does. He turns to timeless Scripture. Verse 3 in Mark 10, What did Moses command you? Now Mark's account is briefer. I would suggest we look over at Matthew 19 and follow the, the ordering that he does there. In Matthew 19, he, he expands on this, says more words there, uh, focused on Moses' writing of the Genesis account. So Matthew 19, 4 through 6. Haven't you read, he replied, that, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So we start with Jesus' Bible-centered, Scripture-centered mind. Some of you know this because I've done premarital counseling with you. Whenever I do premarital counseling with a couple, I always start with Matthew 19. And I, and I have to make a defense for it. It's like, I know you're here to get married. You wonder, why are you talking about divorce? That's very negative, Pastor. Well, Jesus talks about marriage and then gives the ruling on divorce. So it's a very good place to begin. Also, notice, if Jesus were doing your premarital counseling, he would say, haven't you read? He'd bring you to Scripture. We need no other source of information. Unchanging Scripture is sufficient to define and heal marriage. I think it's good that there are Christian books on marriage. But they're only helpful insofar as they basically begin, haven't you read? They, they're only helpful insofar as they elucidate Scripture's teaching on marriage. 
So let's walk through the text in Matthew 19. Haven't you read that at the beginning? So he brings them back to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. He takes them back to that and Genesis 2. He quotes something from Genesis 1.27, quotes something from uh, Genesis 2.24. And in Jesus' mind, the way the Creator set up marriage at the beginning is relevant in His day and in our day. It's an unchanging paradigm. It's timeless. It doesn't evolve. It doesn't drift. It doesn't require redefinition. We don't get higher understanding about it. It never changes. So haven't you read at the beginning, and then he says the creator. I love that word. Isn't that a beautiful word? The creator, the one who made and shaped things. The one who made the world and everything in it. The one who who made the first man out of the dust of the earth, shaped and created him, and then took a rib from sleeping Adam and made the first woman from her. He shaped and created her, the creator. What a beautiful uh, concept and idea. God's intention in marriage is all that matters. What did the creator create at the beginning? He created it so he alone has the right to define it, And to rule over it and judge it. And then it says the creator made them male and female. That's that quote from Genesis 1.27. Now this is so incredibly relevant in our day and age. In our time, in our culture, for the first time, as far as I understand history, we have a society-wide attempt to redefine gender. And so therefore, believing that there are two and only two genders, male and female, is disparaged as binary. We're binary people if we think that. As though now we know better. Within the last 25, 30 years, we now know better. We now know that someone can be born biologically male and identify as female or born biologically female and identify as male. But this is satanic nonsense, and it's damaging to the people who really think that. We do them no help to feed their delusion. We want them to be healthy in their mind, in their heart, and their soul. It's a direct attack on biblical truth and biological truth. God wrote gender into the scripture from the beginning and into every single human being from conception, even to the DNA level. Sadly, sin entered into the human race and has confused minds and hearts and made us darkened in our understanding and twisted our thinking. That's true of all of us. We all struggle with this, a perversion of the mind. And so therefore, the issue of same-sex attraction is at the foundation of this. It's apparently an attempt to be sympathetic to those that have these strong feelings Uh, That's where it starts, but what's happened is society has validated what the Bible calls shameful lusts in Romans 126 or vile affections or degrading passions or dishonorable passions. That's the clear truth about that drive, that desire, Romans 126. They're now normalized under the teaching love is love. 
and natural relations in Romans 1, 26 and 27, nature means biologically ordained and God-ordained function for which nature is clearly prepared and aligned and shaped and created. The natural relations between a male and female, which God ordained for marriage and for the procreation, for the creation of new human beings in his image, all of that Jesus would establish. It is wrong for those that disagree with this to think they can recruit Jesus who's so gentle and mild, and he'll be affirming, so would be the word, etc. That that should never happen. He would not do that. He affirmed biblical truth for the health of the human race. And he clearly asserted that there are two genders. Haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? And then he continues, and said, and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, etc. It's very interesting, that statement, and said. Now, if you were to, to look to Genesis 2, Genesis 2.24, that's where the, the thing that he's quoting comes from. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. But Jesus, you know, even though Moses wrote that in the narrative, and if there were such a thing as a red-letter Old Testament edition, in which God's quoted statements are in red and everything else is in black, this would be in black. But Jesus doesn't care about that. What Scripture says, God says. So the Creator is the one that makes the statement, even though Moses wrote it in the narrative. Does that make sense? Jesus has a very high view of Scripture. I think it's impossible to have a higher view of Scripture than Jesus. And so the Creator makes this statement about them. This is a permanent paradigm for all time, all cultures, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will be clothed in flesh. We know it's a paradigm because neither Adam nor Eve had a father or mother, and Adam didn't leave his father and mother. It was that this is going to be the paradigm from now on. And this timeless transcultural pattern is for every nation, end of the time. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother. So when a young man is done in his parents home it's time for him to leave and establish his own home usually the pattern then is to get married not always there is singleness I'm very aware of the gift of singleness in my mind I'll address it later but the norm is leave his father and mother and be united to his wife the KJV gives the famous cleave so we have that leave and cleave idea it's an archaic word we don't tend to use it that way it just means unites with becomes bonded with her like the two are glued together a picture of oneness, and the two become one flesh, he says. This is the marital bond, the sexual bond, which God intended by their compatible genders. That sexual bond, one flesh, the two become one flesh, is sacred to God. It is also the focus of much of Satan's attack on the human personality. It's an area of tremendous weakness for us post-Adam's sin. But it was originally intended by the Creator as something good and blessed and holy, uh, a source of tremendous joy and pleasure, and obviously a source of uh, procreation as well, children in His image. It's also, we're told in Ephesians 5.32, a mysterious, even mystical picture of Christ and the church. So this is the essence of marriage, the two become one. And Jesus doubles down on the oneness, says it again, and makes his final pronouncement. 
Mark 10, 8, and 9. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. That is his official answer to the question. In Matthew 19, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? The answer is absolutely not. No. Divorce is directly contrary to God's purposes in making marriage in general. And it's directly uh, uh, opposed to God's activity in bringing an individual couple together. God has joined them together. Therefore, we don't have the right to break apart what God joined together. God's authority stands over all couples and forbids them from breaking apart what he has joined together. But then come questions about Moses and divorce. In Matthew's account, they come at this point once he makes his pronouncement. It's kind of clear from Matthew's account that the Pharisees thought that Moses commanded that a man divorce his wife. I can tell you right now, in all the 66 books of the Bible, there's not a single command to anyone to ever get a divorce. But Moses did permit it. And he has to address that. But there's no command. There's, you're never required. There, there are, I believe, in the exception clause, lawful reasons uh, where it's permissible, but it's never commanded. So that's how they were thinking. Moses did not command anyone to get a divorce. If you look at the passage, don't turn there now, but Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, where he addresses it. It's a, a very convoluted case study, actually. That's all that happens. And effectively what, what happens is if, if a man divorces his wife and she goes off and ends up marrying another man and then he either divorces her or he dies, she is not free to go back to husband number one. In that case, Moses said the land would be completely defiled. That's all it says. But the question is not so much did he command or permit Etc. The, the question is, why didn't he forbid divorce, as Jesus is essentially doing here? That's the real question. So that's what they're getting at. So let's answer the question that they're really asking. And Jesus' answer is pretty clear. Mark 10, 5, it was because your hearts were hard that Moses gave you this command. It's because your hearts were hard. Now, God willing, next week I'm going to preach a, a second sermon, just more kind of like a kind of a group marriage counseling session. So just, and, I, and it's like I could go anywhere, everywhere on this. Marriage is a huge topic. What I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on two things, God willing, next week. What does he mean by your hearts are hard and how does it affect marriage? And what is the remedy? And that is oneness. I want to meditate on oneness next week. So we'll do that, God willing, next week. But his hearts were hard. All divorce stems from human sinfulness, from the hardness of heart, the corruption introduced by the fall into sin. And the hardness of heart is on both their parts. The husband has a hard heart. The wife has a hard heart. That's hardness of heart. What does it mean? It's a resistance to God, a rebellion against God, a fighting against God's purposes. That's what hardness of heart is. And it came in um, because of the fall into sin in the next chapter in Genesis 3. As I alluded to, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, Eve was tempted by the serpent, and then she took some fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it, and the eyes of both of them are open, and they realized they were naked, and so they took fig leaves and, co- and sewed them up to cover themselves. So that horizontal bond was shattered immediately. That's a picture of the strife and conflict that leads to divorce. They were broken from one another. And then vertically, when God came, they were broken from him. They're hiding from him too. That's the effect of sin. 
this hardness of heart. Now, Martin Luther, in his own humorous way, said something like this, uh, this translation. Good heavens, what a lot of trouble there is in marriage. Adam has made a mess of our nature. Think of all the squabbles Adam and Eve must have had for 900 years. Eve said, you ate the apple. And Adam would answer, yes, but you gave it to me. Imagine 900 years of that. Well, that's Luther. I don't know what it was like to be married to that man. You know, when he was a monk, he said he changed his sheets once a year whether they needed it or not. It's a different topic. Ask me another time about Luther. And Katie, the hero that married him. Anyway, then in Genesis 3.16, God's curse on the woman focuses on her role as a, as a mother and as a wife. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is a curse. So the, the, the statement, your desire, is not a sweet thing. It's like, oh, you'll, just so, you'll love your husband so much. That's not what it is. The only other time that Hebrew word is used is the next chapter when God warns Cain, sin is, is crouching at your door. It desires to have you and you must master it. So it's a battle type of desire. But he's going to rule over you. So it's strife because the hearts are hard. And so Jesus gives this final verdict. No, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Then he is even clearer with his disciples when they ask him in private. Makes clear prohibition on divorce, verse 10 through 12. When they're in the house alone, the disciples ask Jesus about this. He answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So the disciples in the typical pattern want more information privately later. And in that context, Jesus gives this clear prohibition of divorce. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the same goes for the wife. He parallels the statement. He doesn't just assume it. He says it. And any woman who divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. So the sacredness of that marriage bond is paramount here. Now, is there any exception to this? Well, yes. In Matthew's account, there is an exception. That's known as the exception clause, Matthew 19.9. Anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So the word translated marital unfaithfulness is porneia. And that's a general term for sexual sin. Sexual sin. Now some overly strict leaders forbid divorce and remarriage categorically, absolutely. And they tend to deconstruct or denigrate the exception clause in Matthew 19. I think this is not the approach we should ever take to Scripture. It's not the approach I take when trying to harmonize Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Whenever any of those passages gives additional information, you act as if all of them gave it. Now, it's reasonable to ask, why didn't Mark or Luke put it in? And I think clearly under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they chose not to. But that it ever got stated is absolute inerrant biblical fact. So there is this exception. And the exception is scripture. But bottom line, it's clear what Jesus is saying. Marriage is a sacred bond upheld by Almighty God. 
God invented marriage at the beginning, set up a paradigm he expects to be followed. You'd find it at the beginning of history. He has not changed his mind. His word will not change. His mind will not change. His definition will not change. And God is perfectly uh, personally involved in making specific couples, drawing them together and making them one. We, therefore, do not have the right to sever that bond that God has made. So next week, I'm going to say, okay, I get what you're teaching, what Jesus is teaching. I accept it. Help us. Help us. And that's what I seek to do. Uh, So we'll talk about that, God willing, next week. Let's take some lessons now. First and foremost, best thing I can ever do every week is just preach the gospel. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross for sinners like you and me. Single or married, we're all sinners. And isn't it beautiful to know the gospel is the foundation of every healthy Christian marriage? The fact that we are sinners but forgiven sinners. That the blood of Jesus has been shed for sinners like you and me. And if you repent of your sins and turn to him through faith in Christ no matter what your marital state or condition or situation, that's lesser important than your vertical relationship with God. God will forgive your sins through faith in Christ. And then that, if, if you are married, will be a solid foundation on which to live out your marriage. Or if you're single, a solid foundation on which for you to li- live out your singleness. So come to Christ. I love that song, that, that invitation song. Come to me. Jesus says again and again, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. If anyone's hungry, let him come to me and eat. Jesus says, come to me and find rest for your souls. But then on the topic of marriage, let's just celebrate the gift. It's a good gift. I began with James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above. It's one of the greatest gateways of blessing there is in life if God gives you that gift. It is Satan who wants us to think hard thoughts of marriage in many different ways. Like in church history, there have been ascetics who forbid marriage. They think anything physical is evil, and so they forbade marriage. Uh, but that, Paul calls that the doctrine of demons, the forbidding of marriage, the doctrine of demons, like the cult, the shakers, where they would not let the males and females even literally physically touch at all. It's a cult, and it's a doctrine of demons. I also think, to, to the same degree, the consistent Roman Catholic teaching of clerical celibacy, which has led to all kinds of problems in their history is a different version of the doctrine of demons to denigrate marriage. But on the other hand, um, more people uh, just immerse themselves in the physical pleasures of sex, what the Bible would call marital relations, something reserved only for the sacredness of the marriage relationship, and they fornicate, they commit all kinds of sexual immorality, and they sin. Satan is pushing young people to seize privileges that have not yet been given to them by God by getting married. And the statistics show that as many as almost half of self-identified evangelicals age 18 to 29 have been sexually active. And that's a scandal. That's sin. And we just need to stand strong against fornication, against the sin of, of sexual immorality. We need to establish, in our own minds, reestablish clear boundaries, Scripture has set around sex and marriage. Now, if you're married, just thank God for your marriage in general, and even more importantly, thank God for your spouse in particular. I mean, it won't do your spouse much good to say, I just want you to know, I thank God for marriage in abstraction. It's like, well, do you thank God for me? 
So let's just start there. Be thankful for the spouse that God gave you. Thank God for him or her, the one God brought you together. Be thankful. And fundamentally, if I could just commend to you the fruit of the Spirit, let me just zero on kindness, all right? Be kind to each other. Just be kind. I mean, we know what kindness is. Just start there. If you're having marital trouble, start with kindness. More I can say, God willing, next week. Now, if someday you will be married, you're single now, thank God for the blessed state of singleness. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul celebrates it. And uh, there may be some of you that will have that lifelong gift of singleness. If you don't know whether you have that lifelong gift of singleness, you're looking forward someday to being married, well, thank God for your present state, but look forward with holy expectation to marriage as God has defined it here. Keep yourself pure. Look forward to it with holy expectations. And get ready. Prepare yourself. If you are a widow or a widower, just thank God for the goodness of the marriage you did have and for the love that was poured out to you in your life by your godly spouse who's with the Lord now. And glorify God in your marriage if you're married. Make your marriage a a delightful display of the glory of God. Understand that Satan wants to make your marriage a battleground. But as Ephesians 6 says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. There may be no category of people in a local church, and you hear that as much as married couples. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against Satan and demon, demonic powers. Your mentality should be that God brought you together primarily for the purpose of putting him on display, glorifying him, that his attributes might shine forth both in how you treat each other and the way you help sanctify each other, the way you help raise the next generation for his glory, that God may be glorified. That's the reason you exist as husband and wife. So often, marriages become essentially selfish. She doesn't meet my needs. He doesn't understand me. What, what's in it for me? We're basically saying, what's in it for me? I would commend Philippians chapter 2. Look to the other person's interest more than your own. Consider the other person as better than yourself. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that uh, picture of humble servanthood that he commends the Philippian church. Do that in marriage. And think of divorce as unthinkable. I'm going to say it's a picture of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. All oneness. I'm going to start next week with that, with oneness. All oneness. All picture. It's a picture of the Trinity. It is unthinkable to think of one person of the Trinity wanting out. It's unthinkable. We should think of it as unthinkable. Some time ago I listened to the uh, training done by a a Christian pastor named Red Bradley. And and before he uh, was in ministry, family ministry, he was a professional photographer. And he did a lot of weddings. Uh, In the course of time... um, there was a particular person that saw his face on a poster for a family life conference and tracked him down and called him. Said, I don't know what it is, but you look a lot like the guy who photographed our wedding. So, well, actually, I was a professional photographer. When was your wedding? Blah, blah, blah. They exchanged kind of, oh, all right, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Well, how's it going? Red Bradley said to this man. He said, well, it's not going very well. He said, Really? He said, yeah. He said, what do you mean? He said, well, I think we're going to get a divorce. You can't, Reb Bradley said. I beg your pardon? Why? I said, you can't. What do you mean? 
I can't. Well, I was there as a photographer, but I was also there as a witness. And I heard what you promised God. And this is something you promised you would never do. And now I'm holding you to it. Well, the man said, what do you want me to do? He said, work it out. <laughs> so that's my marital advice to all of you. <laughs> you can't work it out. That's the text, right? That's why this is here. It's here to help us. You can't. Go into the room, close the door, and work it out. And so next week, I want to talk more about how you do that. How you do that. I'm going to do the best that I can. But basically what Jesus is saying, what God is saying here is you can't, so work it out. And if you're a Christian, you have enough resources to do just that. Now, if you are, if you are divorced, I understand. How could I, how could I not think that there would be divorced people. Of course, there are people here who have experienced divorce. Perhaps you are the innocent party. Your spouse left you. We've had a number of those heartbreaking cases, and it's just very, very sad to walk through that. One individual wants to do everything they can to save the marriage. The other individual is gone. They don't want to be there anymore, and they've committed adultery or whatever. It's very, very tragic. But we also know the other can happen too. Years and years ago, you weren't where you needed to be spiritually. You sinned. Maybe it was you that committed adultery. Maybe you had irreconcilable differences and thought that was a reason to get divorced, and you got a divorce. And then in subsequent years, then you met someone else and, and got married. Now you're in a different place, perhaps, I hope. And you think about marriage more biblically, but what do you do now? Well, there's nothing you can do about the past. Just learn from it. You remember the terrible story of David and Bathsheba, and how David lusted after another man's wife, took her, slept with her. She got pregnant. He then killed him, Uriah, to cover it up. They got married. course of time, she gave birth to a baby. And then God judged that couple and that, by taking that, that baby. And so now he's in a, a marriage that was established through overt wickedness and sin. But in the course of time, she conceived again and gave birth to Solomon. And the Lord sent word through Nathan the prophet, said, call him Jedidiah, which means beloved of the Lord. That's God's way of saying that he moves on. We can't go back. He's going to tell the truth in the text of Scripture, but he moves on. And so if that's you, what I would suggest is accept the grace of God for your sins, for what's happened in the past you're not required to tell the story to anyone that asks, but if you are in a situation to mentor, let's say, younger, younger couples or the topic comes up, just tell the biblical truth about what happened. You're not going to serve the church well by twisting it or thinking of it wrongly. Establish the biblical pattern in your own mind. Tell the truth. Accept God's lavish grace for past sins that you can't do anything about now and move ahead. So, God willing, next week we'll talk more about establishing oneness in marriage through the power of the Holy Spirit. Close with me in prayer. Father, thank you for the time we've had to be in your word today. Thank you for the insights it gives us, the truth it tells us. Fill us with your spirit. I pray for both singles and married people that we would understand this topic properly. I pray that the marriages in this church would be healthy and God-honoring and God-glorifying. And above even this important topic of marriage, above anything and everything, is the blood of Jesus shed on the cross in the empty tomb which gives us hope of an eternity free from sin forever. In Jesus' name that we pray, amen. Hi, this is Andy Davis. I hope that you've enjoyed this sermon. 
For more of my resources, please go to twojourneys.org. And may the Lord Jesus Christ bless you as you continue to serve him.